hūtia te rito o te harakeke. Keihia te komako e ko. Ki mai nei ki a hau, hia hata mea nui ki tēnei ao. Māku e ki atu, he tangata, he tangata, he tangata. If you were to pluck out the centre of the flax bush, where would the bellbird sing? If you were to ask me what is the most important thing in the world, I would reply that it is people, people, people. Ena iwi o te mosi nau mai haere mai anō ki tēnei hōtaka te kā ko Maraia Rakuraku ahau. I'm Maraia Rakuraku. And I'm Justine Murray and welcome to Te Ahikā on Radio New Zealand National. Artists Hōtira Riri and Richard Kiriopa take issue with labels such as takatāpui, transsexual, whakawahine or whakatāne and they're exploring that in an exhibition showing at the moment. Because in my everyday life I don't think consciously of being a Māori or being transgendered, or whakawahine, or irawahine. I'm just hōtera. In fact, I'd more likely go around and say, I'm an artist. Do with it what you may. But don't come to me with issues about my gender, my sexuality, because the issue is not mine. Because I don't consciously go around and say, Kia ora, I'm a tāne. and Richard Kiriopa join Maraia a little later in Te Ahikā, talking about the exhibition Manatakatāpui Tairatāne. While all the talk is about Rugby World Cup 2011, there's another event involving international sports athletes about to hit Wellington, the Asia-Pacific Outgames. It's a festival that uh, encompasses a human rights conference, uh, sports. There are over 16 sports where people will come and play and compete. And there are also uh, arts and cultural events that will be held throughout the city of Wellington uh, and also Lower Hutt and Porirua uh, throughout the duration of the Games. Over 1,200 people are registered already to attend, uh, coming from 20 countries around the uh, Asia-Pacific and beyond. In our archival segment, Nga Taonga Kōrero, we look back to 1977 and Māori involvement in unions. Sid Jackson is with former broadcaster Selwyn Murupainga. Before that, though, Selwyn's with me talking about an announcement made a few weeks ago calling for a hikoi from Northland to Parliament opposing the marine and coastal area that's what's coming up in the next hour, whanau mā, so stay tuned to Te Ahikā. It's always lovely when Māori stage a huge event. It's likely you'll run into long-lost whanau somewhere along the way, which is why Te Matitini o Te Rā, or the Biennial National Cultural Performing Arts Competition, as it's now known, is a must-see. It's been called the Olympics of Kapahaka. Groups from all over Aotearoa battle it out on the stage, hoping to claim the national title for best performance. We caught up with former Radio New Zealand producer Lucy Orbell, who was well and truly experiencing the ups and downs, the hustle and bustle of the event for the first time. It's day one of competition, Te Matatini o Te Rā, the premier Kapahaka competitions. I'm talking with Lucy Orbell. Lucy? It sounds very loud. The crowd goes wild. <laughs> I know, I'm just up on a hill talking to you, Mariah, and the woman comp here is announcing one of the last groups to go on for the, for the, just before the lunch break on the first day. Um, and it's been, I don't know, it's sort of been very fuzzy, but in a very gentle, nice way. It's got a very nice atmosphere here. Is it packed? It's not totally packed. It feels like there's a nice sort of milling group of people. Not as busy as I thought I would. Not as busy as I thought it would be, but I think maybe that's just because it's the first day. And it's actually been a bit rainy here on the first day. There's been drizzle um, coming and going, and apparently tomorrow it could be a bit the same. So it doesn't have that Gisborne heat that we'd all been anticipating. After just three regional competitions for Ekerato Kiruna i te Atamira, o te whakataitai a mutu. Tapai, e hikamaa, taringa whakarongo mai. 
o o kahua tiu te maunga, o wai kākari te awa. E ki ana te kōrero, whana whanamaro, e hikona, anei te whanawa. It's about to get very, very loud. It's about to get very, very loud, and they're just looking on stage now, and it's fantastic because there's this huge stage which is absolutely beautifully dressed, but also around it are three very large screens. So it doesn't matter where you are in the venue, you can see everybody, and they look striking. And they've got very sort of sophisticated um, media camera people working here because everything's coming up on screen, like it's, you know, it's sort of obviously being edited live, but it's all sort of beautifully shot. It doesn't matter where you are. And just how far away from Gisborne is the venue, Lucy? Oh, we're only sort of 10 minutes out of the main town, and we're at um, Waiohika Estate, which is traditionally where people might know um, Rhythm and Vine being held occasionally for New Year's celebrations. And it's beautiful sort of rolling valleys and hills and trees, and there are lovely hammocks for people to lie in. It's very green, it's very lush. You can listen to that, Mariah. It's gorgeous. Now, this is the first time you've been to Tamatatini Otera, Lucy. I mean, is it welcoming? Like, as a Pākehā, how are you finding it being surrounded by the old Māori? Yeah, that was something that I was actually really looking forward to, actually, sort of being in a, being in a totally different cultural environment in that sense. Um, I, it just feels incredibly friendly as an atmosphere and incredibly low-key as well. People are... Happy to stop and chat to you, which I found really nice. Kia ora, Lucy Orbell, who was right in the thick of Te Matatini, as you heard in that recording, giving us her perspective on Te Matatini Otera 2011. Now, check out our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash Te Ahika. Next week, we'll have photos from the Gisborne event available for your viewing pleasure. Nā reira ki nā kapahaka o te motu, me ahi tereiria, tēnei te mihi ki a koutou katoa. I'm Mariah Rakraku. And I'm Justin Murray, and this is Te Ahika on Radio New Zealand National. Now here's how the story goes. Hinemoa, who lived on the shores of Rotorua Lake, loved Tutanikai, who lived on Mokoya Island with his whanau. Every night with his mate, his companion, Tiki, he played the kōwaiwo and the pūtātara, and as the music drifted across the lake, Hinemoa heard it. Now the whanau of Hinemoa weren't too keen on the match so to keep her at home they hid the waka so she would not be able to row over to the island. But this didn't stop her though, tying hue gourds to her body. Using them as flotation aids she swam across the makoya guided in the darkness by the music from Tutanikai and Tiki. Well... That night she hooked up with Tutani Kai, and the rest, they say, is history. Well, another part of that story that is often reduced to a side note is the role of Tiki, who's often portrayed as a passive witness to the ensuing affair. And this is where takatāpui comes into it. In the olden days, the word takatāpui was used to describe a close friendship between two people of the same sex. But now, in its modern context, it includes a sexual relationship between two people of the same sex. But, you know, even that's too restrictive. Takatāpui can include the wide spectrum of sexuality for same-sex relationships. So... Tiki and Titanikai are acknowledged in some contexts, and it gets a bit controversial here, as being takatāpui. Now that also can include transgender people, whakawahine, whakatāne, or Samoa whawhawhine. Which brings us to an exhibition, Mana Takatāpui Tāiratāne, where artists Hōtera Riri and Richard Kiriopa actually reject all of that. As you can see, there's a diverse range of works here in the gallery, but um, I can only comment on what what I've produced in my body of work. I've done um, 3D sculptures, and the inspiration for my work came from Fiona Clark's book, Go Girl. It was written in a period when history was changing in New Zealand in regard to the transgender, gay, lesbian in bisexual community in the 70s in New Zealand. And a lot of people that featured in her book have now passed on. I think there's only about five surviving people from that time, time frame. And if anyone is familiar with um, Fiona Clark's book, it dealt with a series of photographs that she took. It was of the transgendered community in Auckland. 
uh, there was a lot of opposition to that exhibition. And I don't believe it was so much the content of the photographs, but they had little side notes attached, and one of them contained the, the word, the F word. And I think it was mainly that, 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 one that word. word. It was the F word more than the content of the photographs, because I think at that time frame, um, the transgendered world wasn't so known as it is now. So I think it would have a lot of people wouldn't have guessed the gender of the subjects of the photographs. And all of the people that are in that book, I knew them. They were my family, my transgendered family. Well, when I say transgendered, I don't know how to describe myself. Other people do that, but that's the category that I fly under. And these works that I produce, it's a tribute to those who have gone. Are these to scale? Uh, no. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's uh, a teeny tiny near there. They are um, three quarter. Okay. The reason why I put them at that height, as I was growing up, a lot of the community in general would never look you in the eye. So this was my way of getting engagement. To say, hey people, I'm valid. Don't look around me, don't look below me or above me. And now, this is why I've put them up to this scale. In order to look at them, you have to look at their eyes. You have to engage. So, Hōtira Riri, if people were to see that book and they were to come to this exhibition, would they recognise who this figure is? Uh, they may do. They may do. Because this one here, she could be doing a pōhiri or a porapurake. And the flowers on her, these are the dead roses. These are my sisters so who have gone. A cape. Yes, and it's, it's just for the aesthetic and playing to the vanity of the Queen. It's an aesthetic. <laughs> and the roses are all the fallen sisters. That's all the dead roses. Um, so by fallen sisters, you're meaning the transgendered yes, community? Yes, the transgendered community. One of the first people to die of AIDS in New Zealand was a good friend of mine. So it also represents the whole gay community as the exhibition is titled Takatapui. It's that whole community. And when I say that, there's layers within layers within that. But that's just to generalise it so people will understand the particular group that I'm part of. Hōtera, when did that word Takatapui enter the, the vernacular? When did that come into being? Well, when Reuben first mooted the idea of having this exhibition... That's Reuben Friend. Reuben Friend, yes. He's curating this particular exhibition. When he first mooted the idea and we started contacting, he started contacting me on the telephone, he asked me what my interpretation of the word was. And I said, to be honest with you, Ruben, I don't know. It's a new word to me. Growing up, I've never heard of the word. But I think some people in recent studies that they have done, the word takatāpui emerged. Do you identify yourself as takatāpui? I don't personally. Other people do. Do you I think it's a generation thing, Hōtira? Uh, it may be. It may be a generational thing. And I think now it's just the modern thing to do, to put people into categories. What about you, Richard? Yeah, do I you identify yourself as takatapui? Well, you know what? I've, I've never been comfortable with identifying myself as takatapui, ever. Uh, the first time I ever heard the term, I think, would have been in, like, I don't know, like 1998. Um, and it came out of research... Um, it came back into vernacular uh, through research that um, Ngahuia Te Awakotaku did. And so she took um, a particular story from our whakapapa um, and uh, eked out a thread that referred to a relationship between my tūpuna tūtānakai and uh, his close intimate friend Tiki. So, um, and of course, because um, I think, and, and it's, I think it's been from from what from the research I've done, it's kind of come back into vernacular over the past 30 years. And of course that's been the time of change where, um, where marginalised gay, and I say that in inverted commas because I don't identify as gay either, um, when, when that portion of society in Aotearoa really needed a po to stand by. And so I, th I think... Um, you know, takatapui is this old term that's come back into vernacular and, and people are trying to identify with it, 
But we're really hazy on what it actually means. So is that because we're constantly in a position of wanting to label things? Yeah. And society is. Yeah, society is. Just, you know, I think as Māori we've been hedged into this place where um, we've had to start uh, describing our terms because they need to be put in dictionaries. You know, our language was never written. So the breadth of um, our kupu, you know, they went forever. But because we've been put in this place where we've had to start putting our kupu into dictionaries, well, all of a sudden we have to narrow down those things. So I think um, the gay community over the past 30 years has said, OK, well, here is this thing uh, that is a kōrero about a same-sex relationship. Let's start defining it. But from my perspective, I think the definitions are all haywire. But, Richard, is it also because unless you're visible with a term that you become even more pushed out to the margins and even more invisible? Yeah. I mean, what sort of pressure does that put on? Yeah, I think, um, like I said, you know, um, you know, here is this term that acts like a po for us um, because we're marginalised and we're grasping, at, we're grasping at our po to try and recover things that we feel we've lost. But I think in that grasping, uh, we're not seeing the breadth of what Takatapuya actually is. Hōtera, the three figures. There is the wahine who is wearing the cape with the dead flowers uh-huh. that represent the fallen, your fallen comrades as such. Mm. Now the other wahine is wearing tulle. Is that tulle? Yes. <laughs> and feathers. This tulle and feathers. <laughs> well, that's the perception the people's perceptions of the drag queen. But if you engage her face to face, it's not matching up to the outfit. Because we wear feathers and because we wear bright colours, that is not an indication of how the inner self is working. And with the shoe that's chained to her, as we are in real life, that's also how I've represented it. We actually chain to that identity. Mm. It's part and parcel of who we are. We don't separate ourselves from. Is that because it's from... more acceptable? Well, in I mainstream. don't know if it's, it's more acceptable, but it's more known. It's it's the cabaret, it's the drama, it's the feather, it's the drag queen. It's the OTT. It is, and the truth of the matter is, it's not twenty four seven. That's only one small window into the world that we live in. It's just another layer, because there are separate layers. Because when you come to the third figure, this figure here is more political out of the three. And what I can see is that this figure is clothed in a woolen blanket. Yes, and it's still got the holes in. Now, this piece here, she's on top of the top hat, as you can see. The top hat represents the crown, because to me, that's when our cultural values started changing. I don't know too to do what our role within the hapu was in earlier days, but I don't believe we were treated any differently. But I think after colonisation and then after the missionaries arrived, which is represented by the, the cross down there, that's when our cultural values started changing. And we became more homogenised as such. And the outfit she's wearing it's corporate as well, but with the cape as a reminder, a lot of issues that are around now, not just within the world we live in, but as a people. A lot of it now, we have to remember our background. Our land was traded for holy blankets and beads. Um, my European ancestors, they come from Halifax in northern Yorkshire. So I'm of dual heritage. The reason why I've got the moko on the one with the blue eyes, that's also me. But because if you take a physical appraisal of me, I'm Māori. But I do have a European heritage. And in order for us to go forward as a people, we have to become more educated. We've got to educate ourselves. And this is also a play on the overcome. So we have to rise above that, the, the colonisation. It's fact, and I say that without embarrassment. We have to move on from that. Otherwise, we'll just trap ourselves within that, that time frame. So that's what this piece here talks about. 
So let's just pick up on the dual heritage kōrero. Mm -hmm. As people, we're defined by our sexuality and our culture. Do you ever find yourself at odds over those things? Does one take preference over the other? No, I don't think... No, it, it hasn't been for me, because it's too rigid. I've never ever thought, well, I can't do that because I'm Māori. I can't achieve that because I belong to a, a certain group, i.e. transgender takatapri, because in my everyday life, I don't think consciously of being a Māori or being transgendered or whakawahine or irawahine. I'm just hōtera. And it's not a conscious thing as we live day to day because we have an intimate relationship with ourselves as people. We do not separate ourselves as a gender, as a race. In fact, I'd more likely go around and say, I'm an artist. Do with it what you may. But don't come to me with issues about my gender, my sexuality, because the issue is not mine. Because I don't consciously go around and say, Kia ora, I'm a tāne. <laughs> Kia ora, takatātui. Kia ora, I'm Māori. Yeah. I mean, the hetero, the hetero community don't do that. They don't run around and say, I'm a breeder. Yeah. <laughs> and, oh, takuma. So I, I don't go there. I mean, all of these terms, I've never used those terms. It's only when people feel the need to identify me, as Richard mentioned earlier, in order for them to construct their own context yeah. to put me in. But we don't. I don't. I've never, ever done that. And the other thing is, too, all of these terms are new to me. They're foreign to me. Uh, just recently, when I was in, in Auckland, this young man rode towards me on his bike, and he called me a faggot. And he went past, and as he disappeared, I burst out laughing. And I said, Kia you reminded me. I forgot I thought I was one of you people. <laughs> so that's how, well, really, that's how boring I am. It might sound <laughs> exotic. I might do these exotic works. I'm just so ordinary. I cook, I wash, I sleep. And cut me, I bleed. So all of these things that other people enjoy, experience, I do too, but as me, as Hōtera, not as a label, not as somebody else's construct. And what about you, Richard? Yeah, Hōtera's lucky in that, I think. Um, I, I, I was brought up um, in Ohinemutu, you know, in the, in the heart of Te Arawa, in Whakaui, and, um, and then when I was five, my father moved us away to Christchurch. So all of a sudden, you know, going from, you know, this core of strength of Māori tanga and then all of a sudden being in this place of Pākehā tanga and not fitting in, you know, I spent my entire youth wondering, oh, where do I actually fit? Who am I? And, and when... Um, Was that wondering as a Māori or wondering as a... Yep, wondering just in general, everything. You know, who the hell am I? Like, um, Which is what everybody does. Yep, <laughs> yep. And so, um, you know, I said before that I don't identify as gay, but uh, from about 17, yeah, I totally identified as gay. Because for me it was like, oh, there is something that kind of makes me feel secure about my difference, the difference I feel. And I hung on to that for a really, really long time. And it, it was only really when I did my Masters um, that I was able to stand back and say, you know what, I don't, I don't need these... Um, concepts to define me anymore. I can I can look at myself now and just say, I am just me, like Hotela says. You know, I am just tafanga. You know, I don't need those other things. Um, but yeah, m most of my life has been defined by trying to figure out these things about sexuality and the disjunction between what sexuality means and what Māori tanga means because they are very different. You know, Māori tanga is this breadth, this broad, broad thing that describes you in every possible way. Well, sexuality is this tiny little thing. You know, this tiny, it's insignificant. It's like a pinprick. You know, and so to, f to define yourself as Māori and gay, well, it, it's, you know, it's so incongruous. You can't be one and the other. If you're Māori, well, you're Māori, you're everything. You can't be Māori and gay, I don't think. 
But, you know, these are the things that our young people are today um, are confronted with because of this clash between cultures that they're, that they're experiencing. Although I, I actually believe that finally we're at a time in our colonial history where um, our young people actually, they, they don't have the same burdens that, that, that we've brought or carried into the world. I think we're actually at this point where things are going back the other way and all of a sudden Māori children are growing up not feeling bound by these definitions and these terms. And I think that's a really amazing thing, that, that we've actually gotten to this point where we've empowered all of our children, not just our Māori children, but our Pākehā children too, and they actually see the world quite differently. And it's like, I stand back and I look at them and I go, wow, that's really beautiful, you know. I can think of all those generations of my tūpuna who cried, who cried and cried and cried because they knew that in their lifetime they wouldn't see, they wouldn't see a time where their children didn't feel hedged in by these definitions. But actually when I stand back today and I look at, and I look at my children, or my, sorry, not my children, but my sister's children, and I suppose they are my children, I look at them and I, and I know that they aren't hedged in the same way. And when I look at my friends, Pākehā children, I know they're not hedged in the same way either. They just see each other as each other. And it's really beautiful. And, I, and that's really empowering to finally be at this point in our history where we can stand back and say, yes, all that mahi, it was actually worth something. So I can see that just through the discussion we've, we're having, Hōtera, that your work is autobiographical. Yes. Mm. It is about your whakapapa. Now, Richard, is that the same for your work? I, yeah. My, I think uh, as an artist, you know, if, if, you want, if, if you want to describe the world in a valid kind of way, well, really, you can only, you can only see the world from your own eyes. Um, and so, yes, my work is totally autobiographical. It's all about me. So <laughs> what I'm looking at is it looks like a clear perspex of glass that has been suspended from the, from the ceiling, and there are postcard-sized images... They are outrageously colourful. I'm loving them. Oh my God, there's so much happening in them. Yeah. And it's looking like it's all you. <laughs> yeah, it's all me. You know, there's actually only one image um, that I'm not in. Um, but, you know, as, as I was saying before, you know, I can only describe the world from my perspective. But the personal is always the universal. So, you know, I, I have confidence that I can describe my world and also describe a lot of other people's worlds. So it doesn't matter that, um, that I'm only talking about myself because... Because I know that somewhere in myself there is somebody else. And so this mahi, um, these, are all, these are all postcards that I sent back to myself. So could you read some of the um, captions on them? <laughs> I love the sunset on the Māori Queen. Yeah, sunset on the Māori Queen. <laughs> you know, that mahi came when I moved back from um, Canada. And uh, the great thing about moving away from home is that you get a really clear perspective of home. And when I came back, I was like... Far out, you know, things are really changing. How long were you in Canada for? Uh, I think a year and a half, around about. It didn't take long. Um, and when I was in Canada, that's when I started my master's. But when I came back, I was like, wow, you know, in just that year and a half, feels like the world has completely changed. And, yeah, there are amazing, positive things for, for our children, but there's this real danger. You know, like I said before, there is this... It's like if we don't address these things... You know, maybe all that mahi that our tupuna did uh, might have been, might be for nothing. You know, maybe it might take another three generations to get back to the place we are now. And so that mahi sunset on the Māori Queen is like, you know, okay, like, is this our sunset or is this our sunrise? Richard, did you find it easier being Richard overseas? Yeah. Yep. Why is that? Well, uh, didn't I had a corridor with my. Uh, it was an awful corridor, actually, with my best friend uh, on Tuesday about, about living overseas and why I feel like I have to live overseas because the external pressure that comes from everywhere in the media, everywhere, everywhere you look, not just from the media, but people, people's eyes looking at you saying, oh, you're one of those, you're one Catching. of those. Yep. And, and even if they're not doing it, you can't escape that feeling because... Because our cultural context, embedded in our cultural context, is this thing about Māori. And this thing about Pākehā too. You know, Pākehā suffer the same thing. And, um, and so when I go overseas, it's like, oh my God, that burden is gone. People, people don't see, you know, 
they don't identify me by you could be my culture. From Portugal. Yeah, mm. I could be Richard from you know lately it's Puerto been Richard Rico. from Kenya. <laughs> Kenya. <laughs> yeah, you know, like and you know, I mean, I don't. Most people go, "Are you Maori? Even Maori? Go, Are you Maori? Because I'm so black." But you know, it's like overseas, it doesn't you matter. You say no, I don't want to. Yeah, and so that's you know, I um, and you know, I have I've had a really close friend um, that I grew up with uh, die of a stroke uh, the other week, and I and my heart mourned for him because I was like, both him and his wahine, you know, they felt like they had to leave the country in order to raise their child because it wasn't safe for them to raise their child in the pa, which is terrible that we have to leave in order to make ourselves safe. And, you know, even my siblings, they've started to say things like, you know, we live in the most beautiful part of the country. You know, we live right in the heart of our papakainga. You know, we look across the lake and all we see are our um, memories of our tupuna and the things that have left us. And yet, the whole time, all we are thinking of is, oh my God, this is a trap. How can I get? How can I get out of this? You know, my sisters are starting to say to me, Richard, you know, you need to move overseas because our children need to be somewhere else. It's heartbreaking, but you know, at the same time, it's like, well, you've got to do what you've got to do. And what about you, Hortera? Have you spent time overseas? No, um, I've always been comfortable at home. This is. And your papa calling her? This is me. Aotearoa, that's, this is my, my home, the whole of Aotearoa. There's still a lot to explore yet. There's still a lot to do. Um, tomorrow, for instance, when I leave Wellington, I'm actually travelling back to Auckland by train. Oh, As Tangata Whenua, I've never done that. And I want to explore all these little towns that I haven't been to. So I thought, here's my opportunity. But it also gives me time to absorb the week that I've spent in Wellington. And up until this exhibition, I have never knew the other artists like Richard and the other exhibitors here. When our bios were posted on the website, on City Gallery's website, I deliberately did not seek out their, their profiles. I didn't Google them as artists because I wanted to see their work fresh. I wanted to see them new because I'm meeting them new. I didn't want to have any preconceived ideas that I may have formed looking at their artwork. So which is why I didn't do that and I'm just so happy now that I have met them because when I walked into the gallery when all the works were set up, it is a, a family feeling. Your story is my story. His story is my story. And looking at all of these images in here, I can relate to them. I know those stories. So in that context, it can only happen here in New Zealand in its true essence as such, as Polynesian people. So is what you're saying that there is a commonality of experience yes, between and it, between yourselves? Yes, and it goes beyond you the term Express it mm, mm. differently mm. and individually. Yep. Yep. Yes, because it's actually the same feelings. It's just expressed differently. Yep. It's the commonality that we have, and that rises above the gender issues and identity and as well as Polynesian, because we all have that common thread. We all whānau at the end of the day. <laughs> at mm. the end of the day. Now, Richard, I'd like to talk to you about your upbringing. Yep. And you've spoken about the pressure of society as a whole. What about within your whānau? Actually, you know, um, I, I was whānau into my whānau from, uh, from Ngāti Tūwhareto. And... Um, I, I, I never actually, um, I never had, I never had those kinds of pressures um, subjected upon me from my whānau. That you know, my whānau were actually the people who gave me love. And my mother is Pākehā, actually. My whānau mother is Pākehā, um, and she's the only Pākehā actually in Ohinemutu. <laughs> you know, and 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 when I and when I think about my mother, I'm like, you know, she didn't just raise us, these four whānau children. She raised every child in Ohinemutu. Everybody sent their children to my mother. And so it's like, okay, here is this beacon of love, you know, and this beacon of love is, is part of my whānau. 
And, I, and so my whānau are always, uh, have always been, been my pō. But then as soon as I step out, outside of um, the comfort of my whānau, um, well, I'm, I'm quite a sensitive person and I'm, and I have, you know, I'm not whakamā about saying that. And, and I, f- I feel like when I step away from my whānau, that's when I start to feel a trauma, you know. And I feel trauma all the time. And so, you know, this mahi is all about that trauma and how I've dealt with it. But what I love about this mahi is just, you know, it's blatant, the trauma. It's really blatant, you know. Oh, my um, God, I'm looking at one right family, now. You know, I Let's I woke up this morning and the world was gone. Life's faded embrace, a memory song. I escaped the scapegoat near and far, but fruitless flies disguise my eyes. My civil lies divide my lives, dismember my dismantled face. I can't describe my dance disgrace. You know, all those things, that's trauma. I have to get that trauma out to remember the love that I have within me. But what I really, really love about this mahi is, sure, I'm blatant about my trauma. I address my trauma. But on the back, there's a message to myself, and it's about love. It says to me, you know, tāwhanga, yes, you've experienced lots of trauma in your life, and it's come from lots of places. And actually, it's especially come from the gay community. And a lot of times, you know, I'm, I'm not an ugly person, and often men, you know, they exoticise me and... Lots of men have done terrible things to me that I haven't, that I felt like I couldn't escape from. But on the back, there is a message to myself that says, you know, you're not just a trauma tranny, you're something else. You're a special person. Keep reminding yourself of that love that you have within you, that your whānau have given you. And so, yeah. Can we just talk about that a little bit more? Yep. So, so you're marginalised within the gay community as oh, well? Oh, totally. Totally. If you're brown in the Māori community, you're looked at in a particular kind of way. Meaning? And it's not a pleasant way. Well, running parallel to what Richard has just said, also because we've been all lumped under the gay umbrella, there is a lot of animosity between the layers of the groups. Um, gay people accuse me of giving them a bad reputation because of my high profile. Um, one thing I don't understand is straight acting. Acting is acting. You are pretending to be something you're not. Um, can you describe that a bit more? I'm not sure what you mean. You go into NZ Dating, every single profile says, I'm this man and I'm straight acting. I act straight. I act like a man. I it's move, like, are you really? <laughs> I move in this world pretending to be a hetero male. But because I can't disguise who I am, I get accused of giving them a bad name. Well, that's something you bring on yourself. It's got nothing to do with me. And that is one of the parallels. I repel gay men and vice versa. And one saying is, oh, some of my best friends are gay. Some of my best friends are gay. And we discuss it at length. And we have a laugh at, about it. Like mm. my best friends are Māori. Exactly. <laughs> it's way up there with a pat on the head. Well, I'm going to walk around this, this artwork and see those messages of love. Oh, amazingness. Yeah. <laughs> I really, you know, um, I said before, um, I, I talked before about text and how um, as Māori we have to, um, we've been hedged into this place where we have to define our, our words and our terms. But what I, I really like text because um, when, when you shift park our text around, you can really change the meaning, just the same way that you can change meaning when you, um, when you think about the world from a Māori perspective and, and, and kupu Māori. And so, yeah, I play with text all the time, you know. I join words together to give them a different meaning, or I put them in context where they don't normally fit, and they say something completely else. So yeah, you know, glitter fabulousness. You know, I love that. You know, why why should it just why can I why should I just be able to why can't I say that glitter is fabulousness? You know, being a tranny isn't just about being a tranny. It's about trauma as well, a lot of trauma. So um, I, I love to join texts together and kind of communicate to try and communicate a broader sense of myself. And so, yeah, I'll read that. It says, Dear Rich Kiriopa, all the trauma tranny you suffered through your youth came from things external. Love your selfishness and your hoa takatapui, a pure soul of amazingness, just like you. Together, we have a future of glitter fabulousness. Kiss, 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 Rich. 
peace. Stop being a brown frown and live a smile laugh, bro. You know, I love that. I, I love this. You know, for me, people will see the colour on the other side and they're drawn to it. But for me, this side is the mahi. That's the real mahi. Took me, you know, I had to work through those 38 images to come to a point where I could say to myself, no, no, yeah, you, you suffered that trauma, but don't let it define you. And, you know, it was really, really strange. Um, around about the same time that uh, Ruben invited me to exhibit the show, I, s I started seeing, um, I mean, I had a re I've got lots of close friends, but all of a sudden I started seeing one of those friends as a person who was just like me. And I started falling in love with him. And, you know, recognizing um, myself in the visage of another person, to me, that is what Huatakatapui is. And so, you know, along with this show came this recognition of my Huatakatapui, my soulmate. And, um, and I think that's really powerful, you know? That's something that I have to offer the rest of the world, you know, that uh, Huatakatapui isn't about sexuality, it's about oneness. You know, when you find your Huatakatapui, you find the other part of you, and that's an amazing thing. Kia ora, Hotera Riri and Richard Kiriopa from the Mana Takatapui Tairatane Exhibition at City Gallery, Wellington. It's there until the 10th of April. There's some photos online at our website, radioNZ.co.nz forward slash Te Ahika. That's T E A H I K A, as well as a longer version of that kōrero is available at our website. Labels such as gay and transgendered aren't an issue for the Māori advisory of the Asia-Pacific Outgames, Te Pai Arahi. The second Asia-Pacific Outgames is a regional um, festival for tagatapu or gay, lesbian, transgender, intersex, bisexual, uh, identified people. Um, and it will be held in Wellington this year from the 12th to the 19th of March next month. It's a festival that uh, encompasses a human rights conference, uh, sports. There are over 16 sports where people will come and play and compete. And there are also uh, arts and cultural events that will be held throughout the city of Wellington uh, and also Lower Hutt and Pūrirua uh, throughout the duration of the Games. Over 1,200 people are registered already to attend. Uh, coming from 20 countries around the uh, Asia-Pacific and beyond, um, from Europe, uh, North America and South America. So, as I say, it's going to be a fantastic event with uh, lots of things happening. So, in terms of Kaupapa Māori and how this event, I suppose, um, features cultural aspects of, of hosting um, some 1,200 manuhiri, essentially, mm. to um, the shores of Wellington or Aotearoa, how, what, what will take place over the week okay. to highlight um, na, na Kaupapa Māori? Na Kaupapa Māori. And talking about the Takatapui community here in Wellington and, and our Kaupapa Māori whakaaro, there, yes. were, there were several things that uh, we wanted to consider. Uh, who were we as a, as a community here in Wellington and what should we call ourselves? And so for starters, we started calling ourselves Tangata Whenua Caucus, but we got a bit uncomfortable with that because there were lots of uh, responsibilities which, with that tag that didn't quite fit what our mahi was. And effectively, we were a group of supporters, Māori supporters of the kaupapa of the outgames. And so our name changed to Te Paiarahi, and Te Paiarahi being uh, the group that um, basically acted as a support uh, for the organising committee of the, the Wellington Outgames and to provide them uh, with advice about how we negotiate those events where there should be tikanga Māori involved. Yes. Um, and where we should also be profiling and highlighting Māori uh, during, during the festival. Kapai. And so let's talk about the week, um, Kevin. I mean, there's hoia. Explain mm. what, could you explain what hoia is? Sure. Hoia, um, Te Waka Ki Uta, Te Waka Ki Tai, is um, an event that will be held on Thursday the 17th of March uh, from 7 to 11pm at Te Wharewaka. And Hoia is uh, a chance for us to highlight um, 
through a hakari, um, taste, sight and sound Māori. So at that particular hakari, we're looking to, to bring to our visitors and bring to our whole um, um, community foods and delicacies that uh, are a feature of, of uh, our, the Māori palate, if you like, and also have uh, entertainment, both contemporary and traditional, to sort of as as the the whakanaho for the evening. So it's a it's a um, it is a hakari, it's a poor whakanaho, but the kaupapa, um is from a Maori perspective, I believe, in terms of we have a celebration uh, around uh, through food and through entertainment uh, for the event that we've all come together for, um, which is the Second Asia Pacific Out Game. So this is something quite new from. Um, Events of this kind um, through throughout the world, they don't have a they don't have a dinner or anything like that. It's sort of all party and and serious stuff. <laughs> yeah, so it's all play play games, have a party, and then leave. Was yeah. that was that it? Yeah, that's normally the the the, uh, the model. Um, but um, again, Tapaiara he thought, you know, what would we normally do if we get together for hui? Well, we would have a hakari. Yes. And so uh, that 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 became the the driver for us to stage this particular event called Hoya, where we're looking to to highlight, um, you know, our 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 food, uh, our entertainment, um, particularly highlighting Tukatapui entertainers where they are, you know, prominent and very good at what they do. So, you know, in terms of Kapahaka, we're we're um, looking to have. Uh, the regional uh, representatives from uh, Pōneke to Matatini um, do a bracket, um, Nga Taonga Mai Tawhiti, um, you know, to, to try and give give uh, our community um, and our visitors the best uh, experience that they would be able to get in, mm. in Wellington around those things. Kia ora, Kevin Honui, and yes, we'll be bringing you action from the second Asia-Pacific Out Games. I'm Maraia Rakaraku. And I'm Justin Murray, and this is Te Ahika. Not one more acre of Māori land, that was the catch cry. It was 1975 and what has become an iconic photo showed a queer wearing a scarf, cardigan and a long skirt holding the hand of her mukapuna walking away from the photographer up a dirt road. The queer was Dame Fina Cooper who led the hekoi that walked the length of the North Island to Parliament in Wellington protesting against the loss of Māori land. As recently as last week, Komatua and Auckland were calling for another hikoi, again as a means of protesting. This time, it's against the leadership of a political party. Now, it was around about two weeks ago, uh, you were part of Aropu, the National Māori Council. Aye. And you called for a hikoi from Northland to Parliament to oppose the Marine and Coastal Area Takutai Moana Bill. Now, the reason you were calling for a hikoi was in part to oppose the bill, but also as a way of demonstrating you had no confidence in the Māori Party leadership. Yes. Now, before we get into that issue, I'm interested in, is hikoi always used as a means of protest? Well, you would thought that why I, in, in our times, there's no other way. In desperation, we head down, all the way down to Parliament in Wellington to show our anger at the government for doing things without consulting us first. Uh, see, they're, they're now after the, the seabed in foreshore then we're left with no option. I know 
one of their kaumatua from Pamapuria, just out of Kaitaia, a Second World War veteran. He's about 85. He's coming down on his pushchair. Now, that's how desperate uh, they know they and he, he fought in the Second World War in his he's in his eighties now. Uh, and when I spoke to him he said, Well, I'm getting my my wheelchair ready and I'll be coming all the way from to the head of the fish. So it sounds like it's out of frustration. It's as basic as that. They're sick and tired, especially when National Party is in, when, when they're in power. All they're after is more land. Now they're, they're, they're after the, the seabed in foreshore. So, someone, does it make a difference that the the legislation that led to the 2004 hikoi was introduced by a different political party? Well, the worst thing about it, our own members, Talia and uh, and, and Peter Sharples. So you're talking about members of the Māori Party? Well, the Māori Party. So they're supporting yeah. the the legislation that has been rejigged to become the Marine and Coastal Area yep. Takutai Moana Bill. Aye. So as Komatua, do you see any difference between the Forsha and Seabed Act that was proposed in 2004 to the current Marine and Coastal Area Takutai Moana Bill? Well, this is worse because... Uh, it- and for Peter Sharples and Tariana and one or two others to agree, I mean, that's the part, you know, and, and when you have, have a, 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 a soldier of the Second World War, who can't really move move around? Uh, he's in his wheelchair all the time. And when when I spoke to him over the phone, he said, "I'm going down all the way down to Wellington." And and if that does not shame them into doing something more, more positive towards us, I don't know what the hell is there now, is left for us. Now, when it was made public that. Uh, Tamaki Makoto Komatsu were calling on all to prepare for the hikoi, the Māori Party response was, well, read the bill. Too late. Kāle rātou kōrero ki ngā Māori. Nā rātou nei... Nā rātou nō te ki, ke te tautoko rātou. Ia, wai ni te... Ia... So we're left with no option but to head down. You know, it's going to be a long haul, but there's nothing else we can do now, eh? You see, the problem with the Pākehā greed, it knows no end. That's the worst thing about Pākehā greed. The bulk of the land is already in their hands. Now they're grabbing the seabed in foreshore. What next? In our archival segment, Natonga Kōrero, we'll hear Selwyn Maru again, this time in conversation with Robert Clark of the Seamen's Union and Sid Jackson of the Clerical Workers' Union about the effectiveness of Māori unionism. The year is 1977. First of all, what's the history of of Māori involvement at the executive level in the trade union movement? As far as I'm aware, it's uh, been virtually nil until uh, recent years. I think there have been a few uh, paid trade union officials, but uh, to my knowledge, there's never been one on the executive of the Federation of Labour. I think we have one president of a trades council, that's Jackson Smith, who's president of the Manawatu Trades Council, 
But as far as I'm aware, our involvement at executive level hasn't been very very high. You know, I can agree with you there. Uh, if we have a look around on a lot of local job sites, regardless of what industry they're in, you'll find that there's a lot of Maori uh, working delegates. But they seem to uh, only go as far as representing the men on the job, but they never get into the offices. What's the, the reason for, for them remaining at that level? Well, I don't know. You know, I can only speak uh, on behalf of myself as far as that's concerned because, you know, I've always wanted to go to sea and I've always been a delegate in a ship. And uh, I felt that it was my responsibility to the union that I had joined to go away to sea to put something back into the organisation that had looked after me so well. Yeah. And how so did you become... for office. And how did you uh, be become involved in, in union of, uh, union affairs? Did, did you come through from the grassroots? Well, I think this was inbred because we all know the country way of life and it was a hard life and, uh, you know, there was times when the family benefit was your sole means of existence and uh, going away to sea was, uh, you know, nothing brighter, really. It, you just, just had one another to rely on and the efforts of each other brought about a, a meagre result at the end of the day, you know, which was something that was that we did on a communal basis where we were all brought up. It's very much a tribal trade too, uh, Dave. You're, you're from Te Patu, mm -hmm. Graham Latimer, you know, they're, they're fighters. It's almost part of your tribal tradition. Well, I think uh, if we have a look at it, uh, uh, I wouldn't say that Partu takes the Tepatu takes the forefront of battlers. My, I've always been a, of the opinion that uh, every chief in our particular area was a descendant of Taupori. And if we have a look at leadership amongst the northern people, you could always count on the fact that the greater spokesman always came from Aupori. Sid, you could have pursued an academic career having completed your degree at university. What motivated you into joining the uh, Clerical Workers' Union? Well, I think that uh, my reasons for joining the Clerical Workers' Union was that, that in the first place, they were the only union who would have me at that particular time. Um, but my interest in trade unions uh, was a result of my childhood. I was brought up uh, in Hastings, but all my family were freezing works. Uh, freezing workers. Uh, I myself uh, started working in the freezing works at 11 years of age and worked uh, in them in every holidays uh, from then until uh, quite late in my university life. But I can remember, not too clearly, but uh, I can remember a particular uncle of mine who was secretary of the freeze local freezing works during the 1951 strike and how for years he was persecuted and harassed and intimidated <coughs> and branded as a red and was in fact eventually forced not only out of uh, secretaryship of the union but forced out of the freezing works altogether and it was uh, seeing the battles that that he went through that other members of my family went through and hearing them talk about unionism which i think uh, gave me a desire to try and move into that field if i possibly could are you looked on with suspicion by the your fellow trade unionists, the fact that you're an, you're, you're an intellectual? Well, I don't see myself as an intellectual at all, uh, but rightly or wrongly, other people do. I think the saving grace, if you like, uh, for me has been my involvement in Ngātamato and in other Māori organisations that uh, they've been prepared to overlook uh, my so-called image as an intellectual and to think that uh, if he's involved in those areas, then perhaps... Uh, it's not quite as bad as it may seem. I think I'd like to come in on that particular question when you say, is Sid looked upon as an intellectual or with suspicion by people within the trade union movement? Um, not on as far as I'm concerned. Uh, in fact, I, I'm not uh, an intellect. You know, I never have been. I uh, was thrown out of school at a very early age, and as I say, I went away to sea, which was my desire. However, there is times when uh, the practical person has to rely on the intellect. And uh, in a, n a number of cases, 
I've already gone to Sid to assist me on certain issues. And he's already done this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've never ever, I wouldn't even think of looking at, at him being an intellect as uh, somebody suspicious within the trade union movement. Mm. There seems to be a preponderance of uh, English-born uh, union officials. Is there, is there a reluctance by both Māori and Pāge to come forward for many of these positions? I'm just going by what I see on television and hear on the radio. Well, the English accent, uh, well, the Tommy accent comes not, in. Not as far as I'm concerned, you know, my English brothers, are, they're just, they uh, have been brought up in industrial towns. And they've, uh, I think, could be, you could put it down to the vast population of working class people. They've been a damn sight more oppressed on the job than the average New Zealander. Uh, you know, the uh, average New Zealander's uh, way of life, I should imagine, is the quarter acre section, the house on top of it, and big fence around, and the world can go and take a flying jump at themselves as far as they're concerned. But uh, our English brothers have uh, been brought up within an environment of uh, a working class area, you know, and uh, I always look and, you know, I educate myself from their, uh, their experiences in their home country. I think the point should also be made that uh, to claim that, uh, as people often do, that the trade union movement is uh, dominated by palms and comms is yet another figment of the Prime Minister's imagination. <coughs> In fact, uh, when you look at the number of uh, English trade union officials who are involved, just as when you look at the number of trade union officials who are supposedly communists, you find that, in fact, they make up a, a fairly small proportion of the total number. I think, though, that uh, people who do come here from England or who've come uh, from countries which have a longer background of uh, industrialisation, that uh, they are more firmly entrenched in their beliefs of the value of trade unionism, mm. whereas in New Zealand far too many of our people have, uh, think that uh, the government and the employers, by their benevolence, give us all these things and that the trade unions uh, actually play no role and, and are therefore just a parasitical organisation. Mm. I think that uh, in times of economic stringency they begin to realise that in fact uh, they're just workers and the only organisation which is really going to deliver for them is the trade union movement. Therefore, these people we're talking about have come here with a gut feeling for the whole uh, spectrum of, you know... Yes, they have a far more bitter history of employer-employee relationships uh, than we have in New Zealand. And uh, they are therefore better trade unionists because of the historical background that that their countries have had. For more information about today's Te Ahika, there's a few things you can do. First, there's our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash Te Ahika. Then there's our Facebook whanau ma, click like us and you'll get our weekly updates. And sign up to our weekly newsletter where you get the lowdown on the show. Aneira, te whakatauki mo wiki. Kutiai Hapu te tahi o ngā iwi o te hiku o teika, te hiku o teika a Māui. Taku ingoa ko Heriwini Murupainga, ā, no Ngāti Kuri, no te Haupauri, no te hiku o teika, ari e pātuna ke tahi atu iwi, ā, kāri tawhitira o mai kaitaia, ko te iwi nei ko te pātū, me roto pefairangi e pātua na ano mātou ke te kia 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 tahi o ngā o ngā hapu o reira me te whakatohea koi nāua 
Nina taha pake hanu hoki. Nga nomad, nga romana. Nina taha airihi. Kua tai anō ki te kapinga a te ahikā. That's us for another week. Next week, Mariah is with Natalie Friend, a stay-at-home mum of three whose motivation to entertain her three-year-old has turned into a bit of an obsession. And with public money tightening up, what does that mean for funders like Te Māngai Pāho? Justine's with Chairman Dr Piti Shasha. That's our show for another week. After this broadcast, it's available at our webpage radioNZ.co.nz forward slash te ahika. Before we go, he mihi arohaiki nafano at Judith Binney. Judith Binney passed away earlier this week. He mihi tēnei ki ngā kaikōrero mō tēnei wiki. Atui tērā ki ngā kaimahi i whakapaipai te hōtaka nei marunga rorohiko ka mau te wehi. Mai te whānau a te ahi kā ki a tātou katoa. Mauri ora tātou katoa.